series continuing this evening into chapter 9. All we're going to look at today, tonight is the fifth trumpet that John hears, John even sees in verse 1 through 12 of Revelation 9. So let me read this passage that is altogether striking with demonic imagery in so many startling ways and then pray for our time and We'll begin together. So let us hear now as Christ speaks to us once again through His perfect word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, And their teeth like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots, with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold... Two woes are still to come. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you would help us uh, by your spirit to stand strong in your son, that we might put on his full armor and so wage the warfare that we find ourselves in. We remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principles, the powers, the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly places, the very forces into which we get a glimpse this night. So help us to hear that we might listen to your word, help us to receive it with meekness, that we might obey it and so find your blessing. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When the older boys and I are driving in the car, I tend to always play movie soundtracks for them. And just earlier this week, Hudson and I were driving home from soccer practice, and I must have had a war soundtrack of some sorts on because he said, hey, Daddy, uh, what's a cold war? And I said, oh, that's a good question. You know, you know, hot war is this kind of open conflict. Bullets are blazing, guns are going, everyone can see all the fighting, but a cold war is much more, you know, political intrigue and hostility, propaganda that is very much a war that's being fought behind the scenes. And the reason I tell you that is because in this fifth trumpet, we come to what is in every way a hot war in the heavens. But one of Satan's great tactics is to dupe God's people into thinking the hot war is actually a cold war. That we do not engage in the fight as 
we ought to. Because what Revelation keeps telling us, doesn't it? In so many different ways, with all these bizarre and apocalyptic images, that in the time period between Christ's ascension into heaven and His return from heaven, it's very much a period of time that is one of battle, it's one of warfare, it's one of fighting the good fight of faith as the seed of the serpent constantly clashes with the seed of the woman. And we're going to get a sense of some of that clash in our text today. So if you weren't with us last Lord's Day evening, what we did at the end of chapter 8 was look through the first four of the seven trumpets found in Revelation. Uh, We need to remember that these seven trumpets represent another perspective that John is getting on human history. Seven seals are one perspective. Now he's looking at the same course of history, I believe, now just through a different perspective of the seven trumpets, and another perspective is going to come along the way with the seven bowls. And we saw that the first four plagues were very much plague-like punishments that fall upon the world that's going to afflict a third of the earth in in various ways. And it was meant to call people uh, to repentance. And it was plagues that came, punishments that came, if you remember, simply because there was this 30-minute hush in heaven. If you look back to verse 1 of chapter 8, it was this hush in heaven that was for hearing the prayers of God's people. So as long as we're spending our time in these trumpets, you need to keep at the forefront of your mind what you're hearing in the reading of the Word, what you're seeing in God's Word in these trumpets is nothing less than God's answer to the prayers of His people. And sometimes God answers the prayers of His people in less than expected ways, sometimes even not desired ways. These were prayers for judgment that God's people wanted, meted out upon their enemies, and now God is granting that judgment by bringing this fifth trumpet upon the earth. Thomas Brooks once wrote a book that you may have heard me reference before. It's a precious book. It's Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he says in the preface to that book, it's one of the first few sentences if I remember correctly. He says, Christ, sin, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four things to be most searched and studied. Now what I want to help you do along the way this evening is see something about our great foe, our great enemy, Satan, that you might understand his devices, that you might be able to wage war against him well. So it's a passage about warfare. I want to see, first of all, war against the fallen star. For you see that the star fell in verse 1. And then really in the main part of the text, verse 3 through 10, that's about war against the ferocious army. So you've got this fallen star that brings his ferocious army, and it's a text about war. But to make sure you get the sense of where we are with the fifth trumpet, just glance back to the last verse of chapter 8 where we left off last week. Verse 13 announces this. John says, I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now kids, if you're anything like me and you think about an eagle with this threefold cry of woe, 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 it seems like it would have sounded in John's ears originally as this shriek of woe. It's this shout of warning. The first four trumpets is basically what this eagle is saying. You thought those were bad. Now, it's only going to get worse. But if you glance down again at verse 13, notice who it's going to get worse for. It's those who dwell 
on the earth. We've said this before in Revelation. It's important to remember as the chapters ensue. Now, this is something of a technical phrase in Revelation. It's referring to unrepentant unbelievers. So, the eagle is announcing, for the unbelieving world, things are only going to get worse and worse and worse. And they begin to get worse with this fifth trumpet, war against the fallen star. Notice again verse 1, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now, there's a number of times that the Old Testament will speak about fallen stars. Kids, it basically is the language for a fallen angel. It's the language for a demon. So John is, is seeing something here of a demon falling from heaven. And probably the most famous time that the Old Testament speaks about a fallen star is in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read verse 12. But you might write that down because it is an important passage as we think about spiritual warfare. But Isaiah 14, verse 12, when speaking of this princely leader, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And the next few verses talk about this leader who wanted to ascend to the highest height of heaven. But because of his bride, God cast him down. Because of his pride, he was cast down to the earth. And so most Christians throughout the ages, certainly most theologians, have taken this in word in Isaiah 14 to be an allusion to Satan to God's great adversary, this fallen angel from above, this fallen star, not just because of its link to Revelation 9, but because Jesus uses similar words in Luke chapter 10. And you might remember this occasion when Jesus sends out the 72. They're going out on this like preaching tour, you know, showing the, the kingdom ministry of Christ that is, is coming, and they come back with these incredible reports of, of everything that had been done through them and through their words And Jesus announces in verse 18, after hearing that the demons were subject to his people, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so I think what we're right to see here is that the fallen star is none other than Satan himself in this passage. In a simpler way, perhaps even to prove that, just skip all the way to the end of the text, verse 11. Look what we're told. They have this ferocious army as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. Now, if you came to the Stone household any time this week, or maybe I should say last week, prior to this text, and if you said Apollyon to one of our kids, there's a story that would immediately come into their minds, and it's John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I grew up in a home that prized Pilgrim's Progress, and we watched it, we read it, we listened to it, and we've tried to do the same thing uh, with our children along the way. And as you would probably understand, our older boys, what, what they've always looked forward to most in a reading of the Pilgrim's Progress is that scene when Christian comes into the valley of the shadow of death. And it's there that he meets this foe, even as Bunyan writes in the book, a foul fiend was coming over the field to meet him, Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid. And Bunyan clearly is taking his imagery of Apollyon from our text tonight in Revelation chapter 9. This incredible fiend, this ferocious foe that wars against God's people, then did Christian begin to be afraid. And I wonder if you've ever thought about your great adversary with any degree of fright. As His identity ever brought you a sense of being scared? 
Well, notice what we're told in the rest of verse 1 about this fallen star. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. You might remember how last week we talked about these first four trumpets, the, the plagues that they bring upon the earth, the punishments they bring upon the earth tends to mirror these plagues that you would find all the way back in Exodus. It's the same thing here. This is, this is a plague of darkness that's now coming over the earth. It's blotting out the sun so great as this smoke from the bottomless pit. And you might recall how that plague of darkness in Exodus chapter 10, it was so thick, the text says, that you could feel it. And that's the kind of felt darkness that's arriving with this fifth trumpet. But I think significantly what you need to know is that in, in Revelation, the, the, the true sun, according to Revelation's imagery, the sun, its glowing brilliance and glory, is the face of Jesus Christ. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1. And should it not surprise you then that the devil, in his tactic, what he means to do more than anything else, is darken your spiritual sky that you might not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's even what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the preaching ministry. Part of the hardship of preaching ministry is that we're preaching to people that Satan has blinded so they might not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's bringing darkness over the world. Perhaps understood in a different way, he's keeping the unbelieving world in it's darkness, this fallen star. And then what we're meant to see really in verse 3 through 10 is this ferocious army. The ferocious army that comes with this fallen angel. If you remember from your history classes in years gone by of the, this, this old general named Hannibal from early centuries B.C. And there was a time in the Second Punic War when he was marching on Rome. And there was this terror that filled those that were in his way because Hannibal came with this terrifying cruelty and, and inhumanity. Uh, but what you need to know is that this army that shows up now in Revelation chapter 9 uh, puts old Hannibal into a kind place. So dangerous and terrifying is this army. Because I want you to see three things about this army. The first of which is the army comes from the abyss. That's what bottomless pit means in Verse 1 and 2, look what we're told also in verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. Again, remember, we don't take these things literally. You could probably just go through our text, children, and circle the number of times John says, like. Something was like something. This looked like something, sounded like something. He's trying to put into imagery with these words what he's seen before his eyes. And here is an army of locusts. Remember, there was a plague all the way back in Exodus that fell upon Egypt. Locusts eating up everything in their wake. There's another time, significantly, the Old Testament speaks about an army of invading locusts. You can find it in Joel's prophecy, chapter 1. This great army of invading locusts is going to come, and it's going to just eat everything up on the earth. And this army is going to do the exact same thing. Exact same thing to a particular group. Notice verse 4. This army was told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
So this army doesn't just come from the abyss. This army comes from the abyss, this is the second truth, to afflict the unrepentant. Make sure you recognize here what John has seen is that there is this spiritual warfare being raged all around us in which Satan, the destroyer, so that's what Apollyon means. That's what Abaddon means. He means to kill and destroy the souls of unbelievers. Verse 5 says it's for a particular time. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And there's occasionally times when I'll come across a commentary that I'm reading, thinking about a sermon, and you just laugh out loud with certain statements that's in the commentary. And I was reading the commentary on this you know, period of five months because there's all kinds of banter. What, what can five months represent? And there's no short number of options about what the five months represent. And then I was reading this old Dutch brother's commentary. And he just says an asterisk like a footnote. He says, so many explanations of these five months have been given that we think it best to say no more than this. Because who knows is his point. When it comes to five months, we genuinely, I certainly don't think that we can nail it down with any degree of confidence, but the point of which is for a distinct period of time that they're going to torment unbelievers and unrepentant people on the earth, and torment it's going to be. Now, children, I don't know if you've ever been stung by a scorpion. I've never been stung by a scorpion. But for people who have been stung by a scorpion, tell me it is an entirely painful experience. And you'll see verse 5 at the end, the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And you don't want to see here as this army is afflicting the unrepentant, that it means as though every unrepentant unbeliever in the world is suicidal, uh, deeply unhappy. Uh, what it's telling us is that the true end, this is what I think it's saying, the true end for every unbeliever and unrepentant person in the world is torment. There's this kind of anguish of unfulfillment and unsatisfied longings. Interestingly enough, if you were to look through all the sermons, or certainly the vast majority of the sermons and commentaries that were written on Revelation in the pre-modern period, uh, they were actually all pretty united on who these locusts, these scorpion-like locusts represented. Uh, everyone would say they're false teachers. And that's who Satan is using to keep unbelievers in their dark spiritual state. And if you flip back to chapter 2, you can understand why in this letter that John received that he was to give to the church in Smyrna. It's talking about these false teachers, these false Judaizers. In verse 9 of Revelation chapter 2, it calls them, of course, slanderers because they are Jews, but they really aren't. And the end of verse 9 says they're a synagogue of Satan. It's a place of demons. And whether or not these locusts actually represent false teachers, even heretics throughout the ages, I don't think we can say with any degree of absolute certainty, but it would make a lot of sense. And when Satan comes to keep the world into darkness, what is the easiest way to do that but to perpetuate falsehood? That people might not see the light as it's found in Jesus Christ. So this is an army from the abyss. This is an army that afflicts the unrepentant. Thirdly, it's an army that's terrifying in its appearance. Because kids, just listen to the imagery again. I actually instructed one of my children to try to paint this picture that they saw in verse 7 through 10. It's a terrifying appearance, isn't it? This army in appearance, they were like locusts, verse 7 says, like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads were what looked like the crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. Breastplates were like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. In verse 11, of course, they have none other as their king than Satan himself. That's a ferocious army. That's a terrifying army. Certainly, we're not meant to take that literally. It's meant to overwhelm us in its imagery about this devilish horde that Satan has released from hell upon the earth. And what's incredible is how our text ends. Because if you understand that God is now letting Satan and his minions loose upon the earth to afflict the unrepentant, you would think that's entirely terrible, that's entirely horrible. But look at verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. That's this startling solemnity. If you think this is bad, it's only getting ready to get worse in the sixth trumpet. If you think that's bad, it's only going to get worse. And kids, what this text is telling us quite clearly in this startling apocalyptic imagery is life outside of Jesus Christ is very much that. It's going from worse to worse to worse. According to this text, Satan is keen to keep unbelievers precisely there. Well, the first battle in the Civil War of our nation was fought in northern Virginia in 1861, somewhat away from the city of Manassas alongside this creek called Bull Run. And it was one of the oddest battles in American military history, not least of which is because many common citizens treated that battle as entertaining theater. It was the social event of the summer, believe it or not. Uh, the well-to-do came out in their carriages and their buggies, coming up the hills over, ne- over the battletops so that they could watch from above with their picnic blankets spread out and their picnic baskets set before them because they believed that a Union victory was an all-guaranteed assurance and they were there to watch the sporting event. But when the routed Union army raced by them, Many of these people that were there that day wrote in journals that have passed down to us throughout the centuries that say in all kinds of different words and phrases basically the same thing. We realized that this wasn't a war with which we could play any longer. And there's a a truth in our life in Jesus Christ that we've been caught up into this great warfare of the ages. And that this is not a war that you want to play with and play about in. For notice your enemies. Notice your foes the fallen star, and his ferocious army. But the good news for John is that Jesus Christ reigns over all of this. The good news for us is Jesus Christ reigns over all this. So as we close, let me just give you two truths this text tells us about Jesus Christ because it's in the passage. Number one is Jesus Christ has all sovereignty. Remember, it was his opening of the scroll by breaking the seven seals that have brought about these seven trumpets. And so it's Jesus Christ that is ruling and reigning over this moment. And notice that the fallen star and his ferocious army, they can only do that which Christ allows them to do. Glance back up at verse 1. You see, the fallen star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He didn't own it. 
He didn't have possession of it. He had to receive it. Verse 3, when the locusts burst forth, they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They didn't have it. They didn't own it. They didn't possess it. They had to receive that authoritative power by which they would use to afflict the unrepentant people. Can you imagine for the Apostle John what good news this would have been? As he's watching friends and family members suffer under persecution for their faith, it seems that evil is winning, that good is being routed, and here is the truth. Jesus says, I am in charge of all of it. I am letting loose even Satan and his demons to do my bidding. Punish with these plagues unrepentant unbelievers. Jesus has all sovereignty, even when it comes to the judgment of the wicked. But number two, Jesus is our only safety. It's our only safety. Again, verse 4. The punishment, these plagues, this affliction came only to those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And so if you've been with us, of course, in recent weeks and months, you remember that that seal was first mentioned all the way back at the beginning of chapter 7. It's the seal of salvation. It's the seal of the Lamb that anyone that doesn't have, the seal of Jesus Christ, has no safety. But anyone that does, you see in this passage, has all safety, has all salvation. So I wonder if you would say you're sealed by Jesus Christ tonight. Who gets that seal? Of course, it's only those that turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Only those who recognize what he has done in your place. Or isn't it true that Jesus went to the cross at Calvary? And it's there that a fallen star and his ferocious army waged war against Jesus Christ, thinking that they had won when they killed him. But when he rose again three days later, he announced his summary defeat of Satan and his ferocious army so that sinners like you and me can rest in Christ's sovereignty even when things seem to be getting worse. Because in Jesus Christ, you have all safety as this war of the ages continues to rage all around you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us in the midst of our weakness and our weariness to fight the good fight of the faith to run the race that you have set before us with perseverance. Lord, we thank you that you continue to protect your people. We thank you for the sovereignty of Jesus Christ that works his righteousness and justice for the vindication of his name and the salvation of his saints. Let us know that safety in the midst of the battle. Let us know that safety in the midst of the hardship that you might be honored in all that we say and all that we do, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we want to uh, sing our hymn of response.